Thanks for joining us. And we're going to jump in. Oh my gosh, Funda is here. That's amazing. Good to see you, Funda. Uh, and everybody else, I, I know, like I said, we'll have some more people filing in here. But today's topic is going to be an extension of what we talked about last week. So if this interests you at all, uh, probably later today or maybe tomorrow, I will post a link to a file that has all of our Friday sessions so far. And uh, last week's was on the, the, the science of fasting, the different forms of fasting, the, the, the health values of that, how that can work for you for body fat loss, which, which is not always uh, in tandem with health benefits. A lot of times uh, fasting can be used for just health benefits and, and a side effect may be body fat loss. A lot of people use different forms of fasting for body fat loss. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's healthy. And so those two things, I would hope, are synced together as people are looking for the right type of meal planning, the right type of instituting any any meal cycling, so that you're getting the best of both worlds. And that's that's really a, a big topic in today's uh, concept. So I when I when I threw that out there, the metabolic switch, it it sounds so. Uh, cliche-ish or, or kind of like marketing hype that I wanted people to know that this is a real thing. You can, you, can, you can go to any biochemistry textbook, metabolic physiology textbook, look in the, the index and you'll see metabolic switch. And all that is, is a description of when your body moves from glucose dominant energy usage. So the blood sugar in our bloodstream, the glycogen being used in our liver, to transitioning over to using uh, body fats as energy or fatty acids. And so there is a definitive switch and it's, it's measured physiologically as a switch, just like turning it on or off. You're either there or you are not. In truth, when you're looking at body fat loss, there's a gradient where you're getting close to that and, and you still have benefit. You're still losing body fat. You're still moving along. You're, you're getting to where you want to go, but there's also a line you cross and now you've made that metabolic switch. So uh, I, I made up the term 25 or 30 years ago, metabolic positioning to describe what that switch gets people into. So you will not find the term metabolic positioning in any research or, or academic textbooks, but you will find that term metabolic switch, which gets you to the position that you want to be in, or at least getting close. So that's what I'm going to describe today is the physiology of that. And then I'm going to go through a little bit of a, of a research review. So some of the, the different body processes that affects what that can mean for body fat loss, controlling body composition, and all of those good things. So this metabolic switch, let's, let's go through a standard person's day where you're not particularly losing body fat. And so you're eating your basic three meals and, and maybe a snack or two per day. It may be controlling your weight just fine. Maybe you're in total maintenance mode. You are using glucose as your dominant energy source. So I want you to think of an XY axis. And I want you to, you know, in your mind, put two lines on that XY axis, you know, you know kind of far apart. So, so here's your graph, X and Y. And then at the top is a line of glucose. So representing the, the amount of blood sugar and, and glycogen that you may be using for energy. And then a line under that parallel are ketone bodies or ketones. And that's 
when you're when you're liberating body fats from body fat cells, those those uh, fatty acids go through your liver. Your liver converts them into ketones, and that's how we end up using fat as energy. And whether you're losing you know a pound a month or a pound a day, we're talking about a a gradient or a continuum, as I mentioned. But there is a definitive switch in there where you can go from glucose to all ketone body use, or, or at least a dominant portion. So as I talk today, and I'm probably going to spend about 30 minutes going through this concept, and then I'll, I'll take some questions and we'll go through some, some discussion. Uh, there, there are times when those lines get closer together, where you're using less glucose and more body fat as energy. There are times when you can completely invert them. There are times when you know, glucose usage can even go way high and separate you from body fat usage even more. So those two lines running parallel, just, just keep that graph in your mind. Now, there are different ways of losing body fat. So if anybody saw my post today, I made a list. I, I said, you know, number one is calorie restriction. You know, you can just decide I'm going to eat less calories. Then you can get into time restricted eating where you're creating kind of an exact meal plan. And, and right before, I mean, minutes before I logged into this session, I sent a new client uh, a little video message with her programming. And I said, you know, here's, here, here are the macronutrient profiling numbers that I want to start talking about. I want to hit, but a big part of that is how we structure your day. I'm, I'm, I want to talk to you first before we go any further about meal planning, because even though I'm the guy responsible for this whole flexible dieting thing in our industry, that's not a license just to eat whatever you want, whenever you want. I mean, you can, you can just go to that, that first rung of the ladder, which is calorie restriction and you'll do okay. But if you actually schedule your meals in a way with, with some flexibility, but your home-based schedule allows for controlling this metabolic switch. If you know exactly how, when, and why you're going to dip into more body fat usage as an energy source, if you understand that and you can control that, you're going to have a much easier time predicting and being consistent with your body fat loss. So even though I gave her her macronutrient profile, that's not all I did. I didn't just say, hey, here's some numbers. Go buy a calculator in an app and you'll be fine. You know, check in with me once a week. Goodbye. Not at all. Now we're going to work on meal planning. We're going to make this work. We're going to look at exactly the food she likes. She's actually a nurse. And so I said, hey, you know, I know you've got you're going to be working a lot. You can't just, just eat every time you want. So maybe it works better for you to have a couple spots of the day where you have larger meals and then we have time in between. So what I've, what I'm doing is moving her down this list. You know, here's just calorie restriction. Now here's time restricted feeding. Now the next level would be some form of intermittent fasting and not that you have to do this. This is not this is not a value scale where as you go down, you get better and better and better and more advanced. They're just different tools to use. So if, if I were to say, and I, and I won't, this is a brand new client. There's, I mean, we want to get some, some progress in and we just want to look at, you know, how we're doing our, our calorie deficit, how we're managing the meal planning. Those first two steps are the only steps I'm worried about. If down the road, 
it seems like she would do well with some form of intermittent fasting, which the classic model that, that research supports and most people talk about is that eight and 16 hour window. You guys are familiar with that. We've talked about that several times. The, the reason that became a thing, I'm going to go over in, in just a few minutes, uh, to get to that metabolic switch, it takes a certain amount of time of actual pure fasting, going 100% without food, without calorie, without nutrition for a certain amount of time, then you flip that metabolic switch. So that's where intermittent fasting came online. That's why people are infatuated with it and they talk about it all the time as, as the latest, greatest sensation. But there are two or three more levels. Now you can go to uh, alternate daily fasting, which would be, okay, if a 16-hour window is good, maybe a 24-hour window is even better. What if I just don't eat for a whole day? Maybe, maybe that's great. And in research, with especially with mice, but with primates and some human studies, they'll do these alternate daily fasting as a control group where you eat, uh, you know, one day and then you don't eat for the next day and then you eat for a day. And there's an interesting thing. This is just a little caveat I'll throw out there. Uh, one of the ways that we compare in nutrition studies is, is very controlled food intake. This is exactly how much food you're going to get in these parameters. Other times they want to test a method. And so they'll, they'll say, okay, we're going to do time restricted eating here or fasting here, and then let the subjects eat whatever they want. And they'll actually monitor that because they want to see the real effects on behavior. If we do a day of fasting or a time-restricted window of 16 hours, and then we carefully control their food intake the rest of the time, that's one way of studying the mechanism. But to just let them go and eat whatever they want, now you're getting a whole different ballgame because that's real life. You know, whether you're you're a mouse or a wolf or a person like you know any mammal that that you, it's got to play into your behavior. So another step in fasting they look at are doing uh, concurrent days. So that they'll typically look up to like three days of fasting. What if you fast for three days a week? You don't eat for 72 hours. Then the other four days you can eat whatever you want. And then, you know, even doing periodic longer fastings, that's another form. So, so all the way back up to the top where we're just going to start talking about just being in a calorie deficit, what actually happens and then the next step with time-restricted eating, then I'll talk about the rest of those fasting mechanisms as kind of a block in and of themselves. But just as, as, as a review for some of our guests who may have not heard this before, uh, all of the energy substrates available to us come from those three main macronutrients. So, so carbohydrates, protein, and fat. We have those in our daily food intake, but we also have forms of them stored in our body. And, and you'll, you'll see in research, metabolic research, you know, that, that phrase glycogen quite a bit, because that's what controls the metabolic switch. So if my body is dominantly using glucose as energy, because my liver stores of glycogen are full, and I have carbs in my, my food intake, then that's what I'm going to be using as energy. That's what my body wants as energy. If I start calorie restricting that first step on the scale, first step, first level, then I could still be eating carbs or fat or vice versa, a balanced amount, one or the other, but at least my calories are coming down. So my body has to look for those internal sources of energy. And the first thing it's going to use is what's in the bloodstream, the blood products, which, which, 
go away pretty quickly. I mean, you'll see blood sugar drop within a couple hours. You'll see blood lipids coming down very quickly. And then you're stuck really harvesting energy from your body. The first place we get that is from the liver. So liver glycogen. The metabolic switch is what is described when your liver is depleted enough that your liver now has to take newly liberated fatty acids and convert them into ketones. So you guys have all probably dabbled enough or even read about ketogenic dieting and you know you can get keto sticks and you can you can test your urine to see if you're in you know trace ketosis, minimal ketosis, moderate ketosis or or full ketosis. You can look at that range. And and that's really testing those ketone bodies. How many ketone bodies are present or at least what concentration in your urine. So in any calorie restriction you may not even show up on that scale if you're still eating carbohydrates, but your body is still turning fatty acids into ketones. And then your, your, your neurons in your brain, your muscle tissue, every, all the other cells uh, are using those ketones as energy. You, you now have that second source of energy being utilized. You've gone from, from glucose to ketones. It takes about 12 hours of fasting, roughly. Uh, it, it can, depending on your metabolism, it can be a much wider range, but, but on average takes about 12 hours of fasting for you to flip that switch. So that means the liver is empty. Now you're in full blown ketosis. And, and I mentioned last week when, when I started doing my, my dinner to dinner one day a week fasts again, uh, something, you know, that I, I started doing 20 some years ago and I hadn't done in quite a while. I decided I'm going to do a dinner to dinner, 24 hour fast once a week. And you guys suffered through all of my whining, telling you how hungry I was at, you know, about this phase because my, you know, dinner, uh, the previous night, you know, now I was all the way to about noon. And so I was getting close to probably 18 or so hours. And then shortly after that call, you know, or the session, a couple hours later, after feeling super hungry, irritable, just grouchy. I was yelling at everybody. I was just mean, you know, emailing all my clients, you know, all of a sudden it, it literally did feel like a switch was flipped. Like all of a sudden zero hunger, my attitude and cognition started coming up higher. My energy came up higher. And, and even though I scheduled that as a rest day, I felt like I, I could go work out. I could, I could have trained. Uh, so, so this week when I do that, I, I think I'm going to try that because I, I could really feel when that happened. Now, this is where, of course, you have to consider that that's a pretty short-term state in your body. At that point, my body is not used to being in ketosis. And, and, and again, I'm not even saying that this is something that you ever have to do, but when you're just in a calorie deficit, you're leaning into that. You're getting closer and closer to at least trace ketosis. You're using ketone bodies. You may have never done any kind of time-restricted feeding whatsoever. You may have kept fat in your diet all the way to 3% body fat, and you, and you still lost 50 pounds. You know, put yourself, I'm sure we've all dieted different ways, but you can lose body fat with ever going into full ketosis. You don't have to get into the, the, the fancy fasting ranges, but just to understand the physiology, the fact that you're getting closer 
means that that you're already using those 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 liberated fatty acids turning into ketone bodies. But when you go the rest of the way and you actually flip that switch into ketosis, there are some physiological benefits. And when people talk about intermittent fasting or time restricted feeding, you know, they'll often say, yeah, it was kind of tough at first, but then it got a little easier because your body will actually get better and better at doing that. This, this switch will be flipped more easily. So I'm going to kind of skip to the end notes that I wanted to present today, and then I'll fill in the gaps. What I want you to know about that metabolic switch is it's, it's almost, I'm going to use a metaphor like a gas tank. So let's say my liver is like having a full tank of gas. If I constantly, like if I just use a little bit and then I refill it, then I use a little bit and I refill it, then I, you know, that's okay. You know, as long as I'm depleting my liver enough that I have to use some fatty acids, like I said, I can get, I, I can get body fat loss sustainably long-term, everything's great. But if I can deplete my liver all the way down and then go beyond that and force my body to become better at using ketone bodies and body fat as energy, a lot of physiological change starts to take place. Now my body will start to get used to that and receptor site affinity changes for insulin and glucose. And all of a sudden hunger goes down. The, the, the hunger I felt last Monday, when I repeat this fast next Monday and the next Monday and the next Monday, that should go down. That, that'll be a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less. And as I have just simply taken my liver glycogen levels down and forced my body to get more adapted to those ketone bodies, there are ways that I can make those changes. I'm getting a little feedback. I don't see anybody with their mute thing. Oh, must be somebody on the second page. Let me check real quick. Uh, looks like Lorraine. Lorraine may want to mute you. Okay, there she got it. Um, you can you can make your body just, just more efficient at doing that. And then making that metabolic switch happens with more ease. But, but let me go through a little bit of how that happens. So I'm, I'm going to go back to that metaphor of the gas tank. What if after fully depleting my liver, I decide I'm not going to go in just a totally ketogenic diet because I, I would not recommend that. And I'm going to go through some research that, that shows you why. But I just decide I'm going to just fill up. I'm going to put one gallon of gas in the tank. And then I'm going to wait until that's almost gone. And then I'm going to refill that one gallon. My, my car, my engine doesn't know any different. It's not going to drive any less efficiently. It's got the fuel it needs but I'm just staying closer to the bottom, meaning I've always got a higher percentage of ketone bodies being produced, may not even be in ketosis at all, may not even be in trace ketosis, but I'm just riding that line. That has some substantial value health-wise. Uh, I could go through the list, for, and we did. Again, last week's lecture, we talked about immuno immunology, cardiovascular benefits, neurogenic benefits or, or degenerative disease benefits, anti-cancer benefits, all of that. You know, please, please listen to last week's lecture if, or workshop if, if you have any questions on that. We're not going to cover that today. But this is how you can make that switch. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about those, those, those blocks again of like, what if you do a full day fast or two days in a row where you fast every other day? Th this gets really, really interesting. In studies, 
where they allowed animals to eat whatever they want. And yet they did impose these different forms of time restricted feedings. Whenever they got into fasting for an entire day, then without any controls, let them eat whatever they want. They always gained body fat on the diet. So fasting can cause people to gain body fat because you toggle between fasting and feasting. You get so hungry that you then just go overeat. And I even mentioned that after I did my one day of fasting, you know, that was kind of a worry of mine. I know what it's like to go into the kitchen starving and I know what I can do. I know the damage and the carnage that can happen when I'm too hungry. So I was really leery about that. But luckily, having gone a full 24 hours in those ketone bodies had started replenishing the energy need that I had, I actually felt fine. And I had a very moderate meal. And I, you know, that was it for the night Went on, went on with my, my evening, never, never even went back in the kitchen, but with animals again, now, now think of a three day fast where then they're allowed to eat whatever they want for four days. They, they just got more obese and in worse health. But as soon as you put those same animals, those same subjects on just time restricted windows where they just had anywhere from a four hour feeding. So you could eat what you want for four hours all the way to eight hours, which is what people typically talk about and study in pop culture. Now they lost weight. All of a sudden their internal physiology started regulating almost like a circadian rhythm. And there, there's actually been studies kind of matching metabolism with the circadian rhythm. And as long as they had a regular feeding time, even if there was a pretty long fasting time, they actually still lost weight with, with all the food they wanted to eat outside of those fasting windows. They don't attribute that just to hunger. They say that is a true metabolic cycle tied to the evolutionary you know, circadian rhythms that we have. And so this is why a lot of people who do intermittent fasting in a very disciplined way why they say, I feel better. They're not just making that up delusionally to make themselves, you know, keep going. Your, your, your cognitive abilities, that those things are well studied and it really does enhance uh, your, your ability to, to get all of those health benefits. So now the question is, how far do I go? Because again, I can stay at that first level, just reduce calories, never do any time-restricted eating whatsoever, and I'll be fine, I'll lose body fat. But what if I could get closer to that metabolic switch and really make that work for me? What if I can actually have less hunger? What if I can see marked benefits to my health? Because that is all incredibly well-studied and documented with, with different forms of time-restricted feeding. And here's, here's the way I have applied it to myself and, and other clients with a lot of great success. Uh, first of all, you know, start slowly. Don't, don't immediately jump into kind of a 16 hour window. You may want to start with just a 12 hour window and 12 hours, maybe all you ever need. Uh, but, but look for these spans of time where you might say, well, instead of eating every two or three hours as a grazer or, you know, the old nineties body for lifestyle of eating, you know, got to eat every three hours, got to eat every three hours. If you just decide, let me, let me have a bigger meal here because it fits with my schedule then let the gas tank get all the way to empty again 
and then refill it with just what I need for that next meal cycle, you will start to match your normal occupational or schedule, you know, reasons with those, those circadian rhythms. And, and you'll find something that works for you where you just don't feel like you're completely tied to food all the time. But let me give you one more, one more bit of, of information here. And, and I want to, I want to show you how unique this is to, to just physiology in general. In just a normal calorie deficit, so you're back up on that first rung, eating haphazardly, whatever you want, whenever you want, just pure flexible dieting. Those people in most studies lose a certain amount of lean body mass. And that's just normal. You know, we know that's going to happen. You're in a calorie deficit, that's catabolic, you're going to lose that. You know, up to usually about 25% is what they allow for. And, and lean body mass in most studies is, is going to include some water loss because of glycogen and all that, but, but about 25%. Well, people who do intermittent fasting in, in that classic eight and 16 hour window. So, so if you go 16 hours, you know, you've really gone into ketosis at least once a day. Research shows the preponderance of the studies that, that I've looked at and that other meta-analyses like the one I looked at in the Journal of Obesity for today's workshop show that you don't lose lean body mass. So how can you go through a larger portion of your day in a very, very catabolic state, and yet in an isocaloric study, that group doesn't lose lean body mass, but people eating around the clock every three hours, protein every three hours, why do they lose more lean body mass than this group? That goes back to what we talked about last week, which was that, that macrophagic efficiency. When your body hits that metabolic switch, you're not just getting close to it. You're not just in a calorie deficit, but you, you go all the way into and beyond at least trace ketosis and stay there for a while your body gets into that evolutionary survival mode where you start preserving intentionally by the actual metabolic pathways. You, you, this has to do with mTOR and other uh, enzymatic reactions. You actually start to intentionally physiologically preserve lean body mass, whereas just in a normal uh, conservative calorie deficit, you do not. So here's what's interesting. So there's that, you know, so, so number one, when you're doing any kind of intermittent fasting, which again, I'm not a proponent of, like I have zero clients doing this in eight and 16 hour window, zero clients doing that whatsoever. I don't think it's the best thing for most people behaviorally and socially, but as you get closer to that, then you literally hit that metabolic switch. You know, there are benefits, there are protective benefits. And that's what I want to make sure you understand one of the reasons why I don't necessarily go all the way in that direction is that you, you also can start losing sustainability. You know, so even though I've talked about decreases in hunger and so forth, some people do just find it very tough and it's not practical. Uh, there, there are other reasons like, um, you know, for, first of all, let me, let, me, let me back up for a second and, and say that an awful lot of these studies with fasting, Researchers have been infatuated with, with ketogenic dieting because in pop culture, it's, they're usually coupled together, fasting and intermittent fasting with a high fat diet. 
So these some researchers said, well, what if what if we do intermittent fasting, but we allow people to eat carbs instead of just studying with with higher fat? And they said, gosh, guess what? When you eat carbs as part of intermittent fasting or time restricted eating, you can even gain muscle. You go from losing potential body fat or, or losing potential muscle to preserving it to when you allow carbs in a time restricted way. So at least you've got those long spans between meals, at least some meals, and you're using carbs. Now you can even stay anabolic. So I'm going to summarize all of this uh, by just saying that metabolic switch is a real phenomena when you get to about the 12 hour mark of zero calorie intake whatsoever. And then you will feel that difference at some point. Could be a little bit before that, could be a little bit after, but 12 hours on average. And then you will know what it's like to have those initial benefits of at least being in trace ketosis. Doesn't mean the goal is to stay there. This is not a pro keto workshop where you say, okay, now we're going to test those keto sticks and you're going to stay in ketosis because now you're going to have a pretty large meal that pulls you out of ketosis. And that's okay. As long as you're regularly getting there or very close every day as a regular part of your meal planning, you will, as my metaphor described, keep the gas tank low. You're just putting in enough gas for the next couple of miles uh, and then getting into that body fat loss and, and you're keeping that pump primed that way. So you're just staying right on the edge without necessarily going all the way over. So if you can look at that metaphor as that, that metabolic switch, I'm wanting you to get super, super close to that and learn how to ride that line. Or if you decide that you do want to do a 16-hour type intermittent fasting state, then you're at least tripping that switch once a day. And that's where all the value is, staying all the way to the end, going into massive keto-adapted states. Are, are, are proven through all the research we've talked about in previous workshops to, to not be in your best, best interest. You're, you're going to, they're just, for all the reasons we all, we've always talked about, they're not going to do that. But at the same time, just haphazardly eating whenever you're hungry, spreading out your calories. So you're grazing and eating whenever you want, and you're constantly titrating glucose into your bloodstream. You will never get all the health benefits, the, the, uh, systemic inflammatory responses, you know, will still be there on, on a higher, um, you know, diet or, or higher in terms of, of you just not having that structure. So I do think we all need to pay attention to those, those windows of time between meals as a, as a big deal, you know, that in, in, as, as somebody who created the concept of flexible dieting for, for this industry, uh, I have to say that even back then, meal planning was never part of that, not, not in my original interpretation of, of glycolysis and gluconeogenesis and this metabolic switch. It was just to lose body fat, get there, make it sustainable, and, and live a, a great flexible type life. But as I've as I've learned more over the last 25 years, it became very obvious that more and more structure is still helpful. So if anybody had a chance to watch my interview this week with, with Cody McBroom, uh, the, the tailored coaching method guy, he's got a great podcast. 
uh, his, the, the link is on my social media and on his as well, but it was released just this last week. We spent an entire hour talking about flexible dieting and how important structure is as well as flexibility. Where do we want to employ structure and, and how do we want to use flexibility to our advantage? So with all of that is just kind of an introduction to the concept of the actual metabolic switch. I would love to have any, any questions you guys have. Looks like Tracy's jump, jumping in here. How does protein requirements relate to the topic? Um, you know, ironically, they don't spend a lot of time because most researchers are look are using just an RDA level of protein. Um, so they, they don't necessarily in, in these types of studies, look at what more protein does because more protein at one time in your body in di digestively is treated just like carbs. You, you will turn amino acids into glucose. And so that form of gluconeogenesis is happening it's just almost like eating a low glycemic carbohydrate. So, so more protein is not beneficial. You know, you can eat, if you're doing any kind of a time restricted eating, whether you're eating two meals a day or three or four, that level of protein at one meal, you're still only going to use what you can. The rest gets converted to glucose or even converted to body fat. So we just, we just want to make sure we're using what we can at those meals, even in any kind of a, a meal blocking or time restricted eating. Um, I'm going to get through some of these. I was just wondering, since that's one of the things is, you know, we talk about proteins being converted into to glucose when there's the absence of the carbohydrates and how that can tap into like uh, the fats and everything. And so I was just wondering if they, it, well, for yourself, who's testing this thing out, you know, on your Mondays and stuff, are you doing a higher level of protein or when you go into your eating level uh, windows, and is that something that you would recommend for, for your clients if you are having them do in intermittent fasting to kind of tap into this metabolic switch? Yeah, I, I would not because it wouldn't do anything for you. You know, even, even at that meal going into my fast. So let's say it's dinner now and I'm gonna not eat for 24 hours. I, I can still only use the amino acids in that meal that I can use and anything unused there gets converted and stored as carbohydrate as glycogen or converted to fat. So there's, there's no latent effect. And then when I come out and I have that next meal, you know, a normal amount that would trigger protein synthesis is all that my body can use. And again, more is just going to be converted to glucose and stored as glycogen or body fat. And so I would rather have the amount that my body needs. As a matter of fact, th this is why Tracy in those intermittent fasting loops, that's why that, that macrophagic efficiency kicks in and, and people don't actually lose lean body mass, even when fasting for 16 hours at a time, uh, because your body's actually protecting lean body mass, but having more, you know, doesn't necessarily help you during those times. Which, which is why, you know, I never recommend stupid amounts of protein to begin with. Um, you know, you, the, the research is there, you know, two times the RDA is where 90% of the bell curve lies. Uh, if you get it at two and a half or three times the RDA, there may be tiny, tiny, tiny amounts of benefit for a tiny, tiny population, but that's, that's the window. And, and, you know, more is just taking away from the, the better anabolic and metabolic effects of, of carbohydrate. 
but uh, but good question. Let me see who else here. Stacy said, "How does how does uh, fasted cardio play into this twelve hour window?" Um, so that's why I thought originally, like, I'm going to do this on a resting day because I know when you're already hungry and and so forth, they, that kind of activity can make you hungrier. But but if you're already there, if, if you're in ketosis, you, you you do become more adapted over time. So this is why that phrase uh, keto adapted you know, came into play. Because if I, if I just, you know, this is day one or week one of me doing this diet and I'm just going to keep my training, you know, all out aggressive. I'm going to go run a 5k as hard as I can, or do a full leg workout. It's going to feel pretty awful. Doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile because I'm training my body to use those ketones as energy. And as I've mentioned before, when you're in a purely keto adapted state, meaning you've, you've been in ketosis for two to three months your body has gradually gotten better and better and better at using those ketone bodies as energy up to 40% better. So for clients who say, I don't like doing cardio with food, like, you know, I know everybody poo poos fasted cardio now, but some people will say, I just like it. I feel better doing it that way. And I would never argue that point because their body may be so efficient at it. They've done it so long. It would be doing a disservice to pull them out of that state of efficiency because their body uses fat as energy better. So a, a lot of even athletes, I mean, there are some people who are performance athletes, runners and so forth. I, I mean, one, one Olympian, you know, made a big deal about being, you know, hundred percent keto and wanted to prove that you can perform at a high level on keto. Now in the research I've read, you can, and you can become up to 40% or a little bit more better at using fat as energy, but it's still not better than using glucose when you need it. So when I talk about fasting and this metabolic switch, don't hear me say keto is good or keto is best. You want to get close to that switch. You want to go barely over. You want to come back out. You want to use that as a tool. But when you go into full ketosis all the way over, the health benefits are reversed. You're not healthier. You're healthier than being obese. You're healthier than overeating all the time, but it's not healthier than having a more balanced diet where you still have a lower fat, higher glucose, higher carbohydrate diet. You know, even, even in this meta analysis I was reading, they, they, they said the vast majority of benefits that you get are just because you are leaner and you are in a calorie deficit not because you're in keto. It's because you're in a calorie deficit and your body fat is coming down. Then when they start comparing keto versus carbs, they say, oh, all of the benefit is actually with the group eating the carbs. So calorie deficits, still having carbs in, but having those defined meal spacings and getting as close to those fasting blocks as you want. That's, those, are, those are the criteria that you want. Uh, so somebody else asked, Tiffany, uh, how does filling up your gas tank relate to a resistance training athlete? So I, I did read one person who was interpreting this research and he did an exceptional job of describing how an athlete actually uses this information. And, and Tiffany, you know, first of all, an important part of nutrition as a performance athlete is realizing there is your chronic state of, of nutritional status 
you know, am I in ketosis? Am I close? Where am I on that scale? And then what do I need to perform for that particular event? For example, this, this is a, this is something I love to do with marathon runners. For some reason, marathon runners still believe in this whole like 1970s carb loading thing. So like, they'll tell you like, oh, I'm getting ready for the Boston Marathon, the New York Marathon, and here's how I do it. And then, you know, Friday night, I eat 16 bowls of pasta. And I'm like, dude, this is not 1973. Um, so I'll get them, you know, into more of almost a bodybuilding peaking mentality where it's like, hey, let's let's level everything out. You don't want to you don't want to carry 10 pounds of extra water through your first 10 miles because you're so carb loaded instantly overnight. You don't want all of that shit sloshing around in your GI system and so forth. So let's get you to a place where you have exactly what you need to start the race light and efficient and at your strongest. And then you have inter-race nutrition. You can use goo packets or you can use Gatorade or Endurox or all of those things through the race. Every single time I've worked with a super high level competitive endurance athlete like that, they, they, they get PRs in their very first attempt. I remember this one person who was a really high level Boston marathoner, um, she, she knocked off something like 12 minutes off of her time. And this is somebody who, when she runs a marathon, it's like, you know, she's knocking off five seconds at a time, 10 seconds at a time. And, and she took 12 minutes off. And all we did was change her one week. She literally contacted me with one week to go and just wanted to talk about the pre-race nutrition and, and methodology. So, so I would do that same thing, uh, Tiffany. When you're in a calorie deficit, we talked about this before too. You're you're kind of paying a price in, in anyway. Your energy levels are never going to be as great as being in a calorie maintenance status. So you're in that calorie depleted, calorie deficient state, and now you know, hey, today's a great training day. I'm deadlifting today, or I'm squatting today. Even at four percent body fat in a calorie deprived state, you still have food during the day that you can manage. And, and that's when I would say, let's prioritize pre-workout nutrition. I want that workout every day to be the most important thing in your day in, in terms of nutrition. I want the pre-workout performance nutrition to be the best it can. I want the post-workout recovery nutrition to be the best it can. Now let's talk about the other 22 or 23 hours of the day. Now we can talk about blocks of time and, and meal spacing and so forth but you absolutely in any state want to want to control that nutrition to your, your benefit. Uh, Tiffany's following up here. Does a longer fast create better insulin sensitivity? Absolutely. Um, that's, that's one of the first things that happens. You know, you, you instantly, even in those 12 hours. So, so here's a, here's a little fun fact for you. They have done supervised studies of fasting with people up to three or more months where they eat nothing for three or four months. And they're in an inpatient ward, they're, they're getting supervision and they're obviously getting the vitamins and minerals they need through you know hydration and that kind of thing, uh, but just no food, no calories. And there are, first of all, there, there are reasons not to do that. There, there are some harmful effects. You know, Some of the benefits you get from fasting go away quickly when you're that extreme. But by the time you get to that second and third day and then the first week, there are massive changes that they, they've taken people who are on huge amounts of insulin as type two diabetics. And within a week, they're not diabetic any longer. Their, their glucose sensitivity is so corrected. 
So th those are all of the reasons why whatever you decide to do, make your initial changes slowly, incrementally, monitor, make sure your health is fine, and then see how far you can push it to your goals, not just to the sense of how extreme can I be, but how, how can I manage this, my food intake, my structure, any kind of fasting blocks, so that I'm reaching my body composition and health goals, and I feel good. This is not about how much can I suffer. It's how can I feel my best, perform my best, think my best, live my best life, and still achieve those goals even easier. So you guys don't all have to do like chat box stuff. You can you can raise your hand or just unmute and, and ask a question. So uh, any other questions? Those are great ones so far. Hey, Joe. Yes, sir. Hey, um uh just a just a general pop person not athletic hmm. it's going to start intermittent fasting so they've got a regular day job daytime job is there any research on a better time to have their meals as basically like the, maybe breakfast as opposed to right before bed or does it have any difference in other words, if they fasted all day at work and then they come home and they chow down at, and go straight to bed as opposed to get up and eat and fast the rest of the evening. Is there any research of that? I'm going to I'm going to answer kind of on three levels. My, my first answer is I've not specifically looked at a lot of research like that. So I'm going to say don't don't count me as, as the best authority here. I will back up and repeat some of the stuff I mentioned that Dr. Bill Campbell, when he was the president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, they did a meta-analysis. They looked at different types of meal eating, meal planning between two and seven meals a day. And they actually, from between like one and 10 meals a day. And what they found is between two and seven on an isocaloric study, there's just no difference. So, so I would extrapolate that and say, if two to seven meals a day in different you know, blocks, whatever they are, whatever they may be, doesn't make a difference, then I wouldn't think this makes a big difference. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons why most people from a sustainability perspective do a dinner to dinner one day fast instead of a breakfast to breakfast because it's, it's tough to go to bed. So the, an interesting little nuance as well. Lex Friedman is a is an MIT computer science professor who who does a lot of podcasting now, and he also happens to love doing kind of crazy performance stuff. So he currently, for I think the last month, has been doing a one meal a day fast. And he made some really great comments this week. He said when you only eat once a day, and he does this at dinner you know, you really value food more. Like it literally tastes better. That that one day I fasted, that dinner I had, it was just eggs and toast. Like eggs never tasted so good to me in my life. The next day, my food still tasted better. And after doing a 24-hour fast, you know, my normal four or five hour windows the next day felt like nothing. And instead of looking at the clock and saying, oh shit, it's only been two hours. I got two more hours to go. It's like, I, I was never even hungry the next day. So those are those, those, those insulin sensitivity and receptor site affinity type, you know, phenomena that, that just keep 
extending as long as you are in that loop. So I'm, I'm not going to say there's not a difference. Like if we, if you're going to eat 1500 calories a day, all in one meal, if it's a breakfast or dinner, I'm sure there's some difference because of, you know, going to sleep and, and growth hormone and, and insulin and so forth. But I'm, I'm going to guess it's a very, very small percentage. Just the fact that it's, it's a total amount of calories per day and your fasting windows are still there. That's going to be probably well over 97, 98, 99% of the, the value. I noticed Corey's not on here today. So I, I want you to try to answer for Corey. What would Corey say about intermittent fasting as a, as a, a way to have an eating disorder? If you had to get. Yeah, it, uh, it totally depends on you. And, and as I keep talking about, know your baseline nutritional status she would probably say, know your baseline emotional and psychological status. If you already have a poor relationship with food and you feel a lot of anxiety around meals and hunger, definitely the wrong thing to do. Um, but if you're fine with trying this and, and you have that, that real physiological scientist type approach and you're making the changes incrementally, I think it's, I think it's totally fine. But you know, even just having that background, you know, let's, let's say you have a history of disordered eating and you've been through counseling and, and you have some, some ways of managing that. I think you really have to check in with that side of yourself and, and, you know, maybe even work with a counselor to go through that again, but, but absolutely a great point, Steve, you, you should not start doing aggressive things with your nutrition. If, if you have had some you know, cognitive and emotional challenges with food in the past. Uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to answer uh, Tiffany's last question here about vitamins and, and supplements that kick you out of ketosis. It, it's a really good question because a lot of supplements do have some kind of a calorie base. You know, there is something there. Every gram of branched chain amino acids is a gram of protein. And so you can definitely take supplements that will push you out, but you'd also have to think of the volume, you know, what's the volume of that supplement that would correlate to enough calories to take me out. And that's, that's where I don't think it would be necessarily a, a big deal, but if you were like a, a total keto nut where you want to be an extreme keto all the time, then, then that, that could have some bearing, but, uh, Hopefully we don't have any of those people on here. Cause I just, uh, it's just not a, not the best or healthiest way to be any, any final questions as we're getting toward the end of the hour here, you guys, you guys always come through with some great ones. Kevin, anything, uh, anything that you know that I didn't cover well that, that you would throw in there on top? I'm actually learning quite a bit myself. I, you know, other than just practicality reasons, you know, I'm, I'm not too well versed into the physiological reasons or as deep as you've gone through. So it's been quite interesting and enlightening to, to some, a large regard on how it can be a tool or, or something to apply for, for someone who has interest or at least to be able to give them the pros and cons in an objective way. But um, yeah, I guess uh, 
you know, from a science tip, science perspective, not much else to add as, you know, I'm, I'm leaning on you on this one. Well, you, 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 you brought up a really good point there where, um, you know, just, just looking at what's usable information, you, you made me think to go back to the very beginning and make sure everybody realizes this you know, fasting is for evolutionary survival. You know, it doesn't mean it's the best way to eat. And so now that we don't have to only eat once every two weeks or whenever we kill a buffalo or something, you know, now we have a lot of options and we can look through, you know, here's what our evolutionary physiology has given us as a baseline. This is how the human body works. Now that we have virtually any option for food and timing at our disposal, what's best for us. And that's why this particular meta-analysis, I thought treated it incredibly fairly because they're, they don't have an agenda to say, hey, do it this way. This is the only way. They started all the way at just normal run-of-the-mill calorie restriction, then looking at some time-restricted feeding, then didn't even address intermittent fasting until kind of a third level, and then the different levels of fasting. And, and I liked that they pointed out that the difference between controlled study groups and subjects who are allowed to eat whatever they want, you know, there was a difference. And, and then that led them to look at the biology of why would these subjects with these longer fasting windows actually be better protected at losing lean body mass and so forth. So that starts, that, that tips into the evolutionary survival, you know, where, okay, that, that's protecting us against those longer fasts, but there's still a metabolic cost to that. And that doesn't even mean that that's the best way to do it. So they came all the way back to kind of the center and said, if, if you want the best of all worlds, don't fast. You know, like this, this, this whole 24-hour fast thing that I'm doing is more of a, of a gut check and a discipline. But they said that even starts to get into the area that you don't want to get into. Just if, if you're interested in fasting, do the, the 8 and 16-hour window fasting. But if you don't even want to go that far... You can just get close to it, pick your own window. You know, maybe, maybe it's a longer or, or a shorter window of fasting, and, but you're adjusting your meals here. Definitely use carbs instead of a high fat diet. Use a lower fat, higher carb diet. That works best. So, so you, you start to really zero in on, on the take home message of how to really get the most of that metabolic switch. So, so thanks, thanks for just the reminder, Kevin, as, as you know, why we're even looking at this. It's, it's just evolutionary survival. You know, that's why these mechanisms exist in our body. Doesn't mean that that's where we want to be. We want to be more in the center of the bullseye where we get the best of the health benefits and it's sustainable. So anybody else who has questions, feel free to uh, jump in on any of my social media. Steve, are you going to say something there? Sure. I'm, I'm going to ask another. I'm going to ask another poop question, but yeah. this brought up a thought. How can intermittent fasting help someone with inflammatory bowel, or can it? Oh, it's an amazing. Can it help rest? Absolutely. Um, most of the time, somebody with inflammatory bowel disease or inflammatory uh, conditions at all you know, there, there is some kind of underlying, uh, just, just cellular level 
inflammation. There, there's disruption in, in the responses to, you know, of the, the epithelial cells, the, the submucosal lining, the mucosal lining of the large intestine. And the more activity there is, you're just constantly putting food in there and you, you got peristalsis happening that can continue to increase inflammation. And so when you have a much slower peristaltic reaction and you're only eating a couple times a day or having some kind of regular meal schedule, that whole system slows down a little bit. You end up with, with lower amounts of diarrhea and constipation, which are you know the two sides of the same coin. And so th th you still have to worry about things like fiber. Do you have enough fiber? Is it, you know, what's your balance of soluble versus insoluble? Look at food allergies and that kind of thing. But just in sheer meal timing, it, it, it is extremely helpful.